Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the second episode of the Understanding Users podcast. My guest this time is Tom Devlin, founder and principal consultant at UserLab, a rapid UX research and user testing company in Newcastle here in the UK. He and I talk about his career, the challenges and benefits of founding and growing your own UX agency, and why researchers should never be afraid of awkward silences. He also plays my three-card challenge to share his favourite UX tool, favoured technique, and a trend he sees in the future. I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, Tom. It's great to have you on the show. Really happy to be here. Cheers for inviting me, Mike, on the new podcast. Great. Um, so... I introduced you as kind of founder and principal consultant. Tell me a little bit about kind of your role and, and your organization. So, um, yeah, UserLab was set up about um, four, four and a half years ago. Uh, it was originally just a, um, my idea for a usability lab, which I always wanted to do. And um, since then, we kind of pivoted about two years ago. Luckily, we did um, because it was very quiet during the pandemic. And, and then we kind of changed to do more like services, so, so consultancy as opposed to just lab. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, it was just originally me as a, as a sole consultant, um, and slowly grew a team as kind of more more work came in. Yeah, right. So how how many of you are there now? How, what kind so of there's uh, we're a team of four now. Uh, so there's me. We've got two researchers and a junior researcher who just joined us a few months back. Right, right. <coughs> who are your clients then? Kind of who are your? So we we do a bit of public sector. It's, a, it's quite a good mix. We do a lot of um, um, public sector stuff. Um, some stuff for NHS. Um, we kind of fall into a kind of niche with kind of health tech stuff as well. Right. Um, but also we do a, 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 a few kind of private set of clients as well, just to keep it kind of a bit fresh and a bit different, you know. Right. Okay. That's interesting. I'd like to come back to kind of that a little bit more a bit later. But I guess, first of all, just sort of talking about you, Tom. So how did you get into to digital? And because uh, what fascinates me about the UX world is kind of the varied paths in and everyone seems to have come a different route. So kind of what, what was your route into? To, to... Yeah, I think but, there's yeah. like, no, there's no like route that's the same as everyone you meet. It's, it's yeah. has had a completely different background and different skills and stuff. But I guess mine was... Um, I was I was focused on being a musician when I was very young. Ah, and, really? Uh, well, yeah, my kind of late, late teens, early twenties. So I wasn't really bothered about a career, and I kind of landed in um, various kind of IT roles, right. <clears throat> and then I eventually kind of um, landed a job in a council where I kind of jumped into a content edit, edit not content editor, cannot content assistant role. Right. Um, and I worked with Lass, who um, worked at the BBC. Um, and she brought a lot to that team. She taught us about kind of usability, accessibility. We were doing like uh, usability testing. Right. Um, she introduced me to Jacob Nielsen. And I guess um, after using all, you know, after, after spending so many years in IT and, you know, using all these horrible systems, right. um, when I learned about the, the kind of principle of usability and, you know, yeah. um, it's not it's not me, it's the system that's wrong. Yeah. Um, 
that's when yeah the, the kind of the 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 door started opening in my mind and it was just yeah it was amazing i just couldn't get enough of it and i was a bit of a usability kick i think um, wow. but yeah i think working at the council i think you really have to do things the right way so i think um well usability is obviously important but accessibility you have to meet certain standards so that right. those two things to me kind of um yeah sit quite closely together Wow. So from wannabe rock star to UX guru, essentially. Yeah, cool. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay, great. So tell us a little bit about a kind of typical day for you as a, as a, as a lead UX, lead user researcher, if you like, kind of what kind of stuff do you work on? What kind of research do you do? How do you structure your day? Yeah, so um, it depends what project's going on, really. I mean, it depends, depends what we're doing, but, um, you know, for a we might have a be doing a kind of a shorter study, which is just a usability study. We'll always have a catch up uh, call at the start of the day, you know, like a stand up call. Um, and sometimes that will be with the client, depending on what 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 project we're doing. If it's a discovery project, we'll tend to include the, the client in that. If it's just a, you know, if it's a smaller study, it'll just be us, and then we we'll have a, a, a different catch up call with the client. Um, but yeah, um, it's all about just um, we've got kind of systems in place now. I'm a bit of a kind of system um, fiend. So we've, we've got kind of systems where, you know, if usability study takes two, two and a half weeks. Um, discovery studies take, you know, two, three months, depending on what we're doing. Um, but yeah, we're in a kind of a, a state of flow where um, everyone knows what everyone's doing. There's good communication. That took a while to, to kind of come. But um, yeah, I think we're at the stage now where um, it's, yeah, we just do things agile, really. Right. And and what effect has, has COVID and kind of the need to work remotely kind of had on the kind of research you do and how you work? Yeah, I mean, we we positioned ourselves as um, remote first. Right. Um, so basically during the pandemic, yeah, as you know, it was just, yeah, when it was crazy, it went really quiet for the first couple of months. And then everyone realized that you could do stuff remotely. Um, and we just started just doing everything remotely uh, since then, you know. And I think, you know, there's going to be times when we will do stuff in person um you know when there's more kind of contextual stuff needed but right. um for the most part remote stuff is you know remote is doing us um it's working well for us at the moment right right so user-centered design is obviously kind of a central term in the work we do kind of what does it mean to you and how does it kind of impact on the work that you and your kind of colleagues do day to day um well i, I guess yeah i mean it's, it's everything really it's, it's why i set the company up it's all about just yeah kind of understanding you know who your users are before you start designing for them really if you, if you don't know who they are you risk making something that no one's going to potentially use you know or it's going to be a bad product that's not going to be very usable and it's not going to meet people's needs so yeah that's kind of at the core of of what we do we did some um we did a workshop where we um developed a set of values for the, the company a few months back uh, i think one of the first one is uh, you know meet user needs one project at a time so it's all about understanding not only um you know, about kind of evidence and the needs of the people that you're um, doing research with, um, but also understanding client needs, you know, understanding your, your colleagues' needs, all that kind of stuff. Right. It's interesting you mentioned clients' needs. I was going to ask you kind of how do you, uh, you talked about kind of having some daily stand-ups in certain cases with clients, but as you're going through and kind of gathering research insights, how do you share that knowledge that you've gained and those insights with your clients and, and kind of with your team? Yeah, it's interesting you ask this because I've been thinking about this lately. You know, we're we're still very much in the kind of the report stage, but you know we'll um, we'll share reports, we'll share videos as part of that report and presentation. Right. Um, but I think yeah, I want to try and be a bit more innovative and just do things a bit differently. You know, use more kind of uh, well edited video clips and you know memes and stuff like that. I think uh, just make it a bit more engaging because people don't engage that well with reports, um, presentations. Maybe yes, if you can kind of mix mix it up a bit, but. Um, 
yeah, mainly reports at the moment. So when you say reports, what is that like a, a PDF document? Or it's something? a PDF document. Yeah, it's a PDF document that we we do a kind of hybrid thing, which is a, a, a present a presentable PDF. So it's not really wordy. Right. And uh, there's not too much on the slide, but it's you know it's got the essential stuff on there. So um, yeah, um, that's that's what we do mainly. Ah. so how then do you think kind of can user researchers we and i include obviously we're both user researchers ensure that they have an impact on the product teams that they're working with and kind of the services that they're helping to research into primarily yeah. to ensure they meet those user needs that you talked about in terms of the understanding the research well it, the research yeah i suppose it's an ultimately beyond that kind of making an impact ensuring that what they're learning is actually then being used to build services which meet the needs of users yeah, I guess it's about yeah making it communicating it really well. I think there's a good quote that I like from um, John Waterworth, who used to be the head of research at um, GDS. Um, user research is is two parts communication, one part research. You know, there's no point doing all this amazing research if no one's going to hear about it. If you're not going to present it well, you know, if you're not going to present it in a, in a kind of meaningful um, way. Um, so yeah, I guess the, the communication thing is really important. So that's that's letting people know what you're doing, get them involved in the research, uh, you know, helping them kind of boot the research, helping them design the tasks, get them involved in every, every kind of stage, um, get them to observe, take notes, obviously, and even help with the, the analysis and reporting if you can. So it's, it's just getting them engaged in that because you'll find that um, often the, the kind of most disengaged once they, once they kind of see research in action or understand what you're doing, there will be, you'll see the kind of, that kind of penny drop moment and they will be really engaged. It's, it's just about kind of doing that from the start. I learned that the hard way. I think when I was doing um, stuff in government and I think it was HMRC, um, you've got a lot of kind of um, powerful stakeholders in the, in the mix. And, um, you know, when I first started doing the research, I saw it very much as kind of us and them. Right. And they would be doing their kind of um, comms and reports. They'll have the whole kind of insights teams doing that. We'd have our, our kind of user research uh, little outfit. And, um, yeah, I think that the sooner that you can kind of get to know these people and just work with them as opposed to against them, I think that's that's when the, the kind of beauty start ha starts happening. Yeah, this interesting. That really resonates with me. This particularly because yeah. most of my work in the recent years has been in government. Is that need to kind of bring civil servants, policymakers with you, and as you say, involve them in observation, involve them in the analysis, and then kind of you can almost see the light bulb moment when they're like, ah, oh, okay, now I understand why the user doesn't understand the guidance that we wrote for them etc etc yeah so, yeah it's it's interesting and you mentioned there kind of obviously government and and but i'm interested that what should because you've also done obviously user lab done a bunch of private sector work private sector clients what's been the biggest kind of difference for you as an organization in dealing with all you personally in dealing with public sector versus private sector in um, terms of culture communication anything else yeah so i guess it depends there's a few yeah so so um i guess public sector they they have more motivation to do things the right way. You know, you've got to, if you want to be on um, Gov.uk or if you want to be on, um, if you want to be an NHS website, for example, right. um, you've got to meet certain standards. So um, I think most of the time people are kind of bought into that and they want to, they want to do it the right way. Right. Um, there are still some kind of learnings there with like um, some of the smaller agencies. There's quite a lot of different kind of sub agencies and stuff. We did, we did a project with um, part of the NHS a couple of months ago and um they didn't really know about any, any of this, so we had to kind of introduce that, and we had to kind of um, yeah introduce the principles, the NHS design principles, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, often um, yeah, it, it it kind of depends on the team and the maturity of the team, I guess. Right. Um, sometimes they'll be bought in, sometimes they'll need a bit of kind of learning. There's always an education piece, I think, with user research. Whatever you're doing, you've always got to be educating them. 
Right. Uh, it's just part of the role, really. Right. Um, I guess with some of the, um, the private sector stuff, um, yeah, there's there's almost like a sense of right. Um, they know exactly what they want. They want um, often they want validation. You know, right. they, uh, or they we want, know yeah, our they users want, type thing. Yeah, or they they want to change the website and they basically want some evidence from someone else uh, to kind of back them up really, bef- bef- so they can kind of get budget approval or you know. Right, right. Kind of right. Stuff. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, a lot that resonates a lot. And you get that kind of the hippo, the highest paid person in the room. And I, I've seen that certainly when I was in yeah. the private sector where, you know, teams will do research and design and they'll they'll have a design which is well tested and well proven. And then someone will swoop in from above. And um, I think seagull management is also known as, isn't it? <laughs> for <laughs> obvious seagull. reasons. I've never heard that before, seagull management. Um, for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> to kind of like, yes, to despoil what the work that's been done and kind of yeah. change the direction that we're in. But to uh, know, very interesting. So we talked a little bit about kind of user lab uh, at the beginning, and I'm really keen to hear more about that. And and uh, so just sort of tell me a little bit more about kind of how you started it and, and why you started it. You said it's about four years old. Is that right? Yeah. So I was working and um, it's it's four and a half years old. It's the same as my daughter. Yeah. Never, right. never start a business and uh, family <laughs> at the same time for anyone listening. Um, <laughs> pretty stressful. Um, I guess uh, the motivation for starting, I was I was working in um, yeah in the um, in a government digital team. Um, I was doing pretty well. I was enjoying it, and then I was I think I was made a manager, and I was kind of doing all the things associated with management, and I wasn't doing much of the hands on research anymore, which I missed. Right. Um, and I think I always had this yeah I had this kind of dream of setting up a usability lab for right. years and years, and I noticed that there was. A demand for this kind of thing and there wasn't any in the northeast so right. i thought i would just put my kind of passions of um, user research and technology together and just make this thing because all the ones that we'd seen so far um were like massive budgets like 100k and stuff and right. i think you built one for like 20k uh well i didn't build it but someone else built it in the team and um yeah the technology and stuff was just awful um and i thought well i can do that for much cheaper you know using um different bits of tech um, so I think I built it for about 5k originally, which was right. just really cheap in it. But right. um, yeah, it was, it was good quality um, using like open source software and stuff. Right. Um, and yeah, I think I, it's, it's pretty bad as a researcher, but I think I, I built it on assumption. I didn't do right. any research into the market. Right. I wasn't a business man, you know, I, I just kind of took a plunge and uh, it kind of worked out. Uh, I probably lost me a lot of mistakes. Lost a lot of money in the, in the early years, but um, yeah, I think you learn from those moments, don't you? And you, you kind of grow. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and you mentioned the northeast, so I'm interested to know the kind of geographical aspect because you've sort of carved a bit of a niche for yourself up there, haven't you? I guess there's kind of less competition than there would be, for example, in London or Bristol or the kind of more obvious UX centres. Yeah. So there was there was one or two agencies which were like full service. Um, UX design agencies, so they would, you know, they would do, or they would say they would do the research, but not not everyone actually did the research. They would do, um, they would do um, design, they would do development, um, all that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, there was like two other agencies and us, um, but now I think we're the only one. Um, right. So yeah, at the moment, there are maybe some other agencies who do more like design and development, but don't focus on a, on a, on a research. Um, aspect so yeah we're more, we're more in a niche i guess but i've been thinking lately maybe you know should we do more design i don't know we do a little bit here and there right right and how do you typically kind of find work and find new clients as, as an agency do you, do you go out and pitch or do they come to you or is it recommendation or how does it work yeah it's it's mainly um 
it's mainly we get we get a mix of kind of organic stuff through Google, uh, right. which is always interesting. So we, we sometimes get um, yeah invited to pitch for stuff that way, uh, and yeah, I would say about half of it is is through Google, half of it is through some of the kind of uh, the, the the tendering frameworks, the public sector stuff, right? Uh, which is really competitive at the moment. But yeah, that's 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 generally how we do it. Um, I'm I'm the worst person at sales and networking, but um, yeah, as part of me moving away from doing the hands-on research and kind of more of the, the, the kind of leading the company role, that's, I'm, I'm kind of learning more of this stuff and doing a bit more of that day to day, yeah. Right, it's that kind of fat founder thing where you have to spread your wings and kind of become a jack yeah, of all trades. you have. <laughs> so what's been um, easier than expected um, about kind of founding an agency and kind of growing it? And it, conversely, what's been harder than, than you expected? <laughs> um, I, I think the... <clears throat> The, the the easy thing for me was the is the kind of the I guess the branding the content the marketing finding time to do that that's that's a struggle when you when you obviously you run a team and a family um it's quite a small team um those things have been easy I mean obviously you know running uh, leading on research projects because I've done it for a few years I can kind of do that quite confidently without you know any 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 prep and stuff and kind of you know leading client meetings. Yeah. Um, I think that thing comes with time, though. Whereas you know, at the start, I would be quite—I would know my subject, but I might be a bit kind of nervous about, you know, how do you work with clients, how do you communicate right. with clients, how do you sell something, right. all that kind of stuff was completely new to me. Um, so you know, as you go, you just kind of learn little little, little uh, tidbits and little techniques and stuff here and there, and then you see what works, what doesn't, and then you just iterate it. Yeah, just right. keep it really flexible like that. And what's been your single biggest challenge or your biggest pain point to use a question I often ask uh, <laughs> research participants during the during research interviews? Um, ooh, I think, um, yeah, one of them is, I mean, there's, there's been a few projects over the years, let me think, um, where I've thought, yeah, we're, we're not going to do like, it like that anymore. I think every, every project we do, we learn something. Um, right. I guess challenges in terms of... Um, yeah, just keeping keeping morale up, keeping the team organized. Um, also, um, yeah, just kind of managing the kind of expectations of clients and the you know, right. uh, and the research. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's quite. It's I guess there's not been a single most challenge I can probably think of. Um, well, I, I can think of one where we did a um, some research or some recruitment for um, a, a client where. Um, they were based. They were wanting to speak to people in China, people in the US, right? Um, different time zones, um, different kind of obviously languages. We had, we had translators in. People didn't show oh, up. Wow. We still had to pay right. the translators. That kind of thing. That was just a nightmare, you know. Right. Um, but also, yeah, a project we did um, a few months ago. Um, it was a discovery project where, when we read the brief, um, there was things in there which we wouldn't normally do in terms of um, outputs. Right. Um, but we thought, you know, we we'll um, put a proposal together and see what we would do and we would say we'd work with you to do these outputs right um but yeah it kind of it turned out okay but um if i went back in time i would probably do things a bit differently and just stick to our kind of guns and say right we don't do that this is what we do this is what we do best right as opposed to trying to kind of tailor the outputs to um the client needs um so yeah there's always stuff like that that you can learn from each project Right, right, absolutely. So, what are the key characteristics, would you say, or personality traits that make someone a good user researcher? Ooh, um, I guess yeah, they have to be really, you know, those, those kind of um, interpersonal skills. You know, having kind of empathy, um, 
curiosity is the the obvious one as well yeah um but just being a good listener you know that you'd be surprised how many people don't actually um do that um when i used to have the lab i used to sit in on sessions and you know when it was just me um running place i used to observe a lot of user researchers and you'd be, you'd be surprised how um how few researchers will just let that kind of silence go right you know those awkward silences and uh just try to kind of fill them you know trying to fill them with like talking um too much and yeah prompting too much and it just yeah it doesn't it doesn't make for a natural kind of feeling or um it's not gonna it's not gonna make things happen naturally you know you kind of you're forcing people in a way um and yeah. there's almost like yeah there's definitely a sense of um trying to kind of validate things in some ways which i've seen with some of the younger uh, more well not always younger um just kind of less experienced researchers um yeah i don't know if you've found that yourself but there's a lot of yeah it's it's very interesting that kind of silence that you talk about the need for you know the 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 kind of power that brings and the insight that brings often by not jumping in just letting people talk and letting people letting people struggle to a certain extent without sort of putting them unduly under pressure but particularly if you're sort of showing a prototype or something uh, not as you say not jumping in and helping them because that completely defeats the point of it yeah i think if you you just introduce the session um well and you know they know exactly what they're doing then you you know if you've got any questions, you can just ask me and just sit back and just shut up and let them do it. And I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a good, I don't know if you read um, Nick Bomast's book, User Palooza, but there's a good um, diagram in there, which he, I think he's got like a pie chart or something in it, or an infographic. It's like, right. write down how much time you spend talking, record how much time you spend talking and record how much the participant did. Right. And then, you know, create this infographic and uh, you might be surprised. That's I've done it myself, you know, sometimes I do it when you're a bit nervous and you just kind of talk endlessly. Yeah. And then you, you watch a session back and think, God, I wish I would just, just shut up, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, and do the thing. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, it's very true, isn't it? So what tips or advice, kind of based on sort of things we were just talking about, would you give uh, an aspiring user researcher? So if someone came to you and said, I'd love to get into this world, it seems fascinating. How can I do that? What, what would you say to them? Yeah, so there's a lot of people really interested at the minute, and rightly so. You know, it's an it's an interesting area. I think um, I, th- I think it's really important to know um, the fundamentals, the theory side. So I think you learn by doing. You you know you you're only going to learn in viewing of you know um, analysis techniques by by doing those things. But I think understanding um, things like cognitive biases is so important. Understanding you know um, having an interest in psychology. Right. Um, understanding design principles i mean this might be a lot to ask of someone but i think um you know understanding um design principles is really going to help how you um you know if you, if you before you get to the kind of the um the research stage testing products with users it's it's, it's really important to understand what comes before that so you know that kind of um heuristic evaluation expert review yeah. uh stuff yeah, so understanding yeah. right what's wrong with this design how would, how would people use it you know um yeah. is this all those buttons in the right position etc yeah the interface understanding those things is really important so getting a, get a bit of an understanding of uh design principles um hci that kind of stuff or even you know basic web design you can start with there's a lot of different courses out there yeah. um so yeah psychology cognitive biases design principles um, and obviously usability, you know, usability heuristics is really important and yeah. accessibility, I would say as well. Totally. No, that, I totally agree with all of that. And what, what's always struck me about this industry is how kind of open and sharing it is. Like when I yeah. first wanted to move into UX, I did a, a 
psychology master's degree, which is kind of what pivoted me into this world. And I remember reaching out to some quite well-known people in, in this industry, and they didn't know me from Adam, and I was nobody to them. But I said, you know, can we have a chat? And invariably, they said yes, and they'd either give me a phone call or sometimes, you know, in a couple of cases, met up for a drink. And they shared all their kind of, not, you know, knowledge and expertise and tips and read this book and go and talk to that person. And I thought that was remarkable because yeah. there's many, many industries where you wouldn't get that sort of Definitely, uh, yeah, welcome, yeah. which was lovely. Yeah. I mean, we're in, we're in the kind of knowledge business, right? So I think yeah. that's, yeah, that kind of information sharing, knowledge sharing. And um, yeah, that, there's a good sense of community. There's a good, I don't know if you're on Slack, Research Ops. That, that's a really good community, very uh, supportive. I'm on Slack, but not that one. And um, yeah, I think in my kind of government days, you know this yourself, the, the community there was really good. I think yes. that really helped me. I think, yeah, learn from, um, there's some really good researchers yep. um, I, was, I was working with back then. I think, yeah, having, having kind of people to, be mentored you can kind of learn from as be mentored by is really really helpful um yeah yeah no that's true isn't it the mentoring thing and i and i've mentored a few kind of juniors in in the over the last few years and what i find is it's that age-old thing about you know teachers learn as they're teaching it's kind of if you're mentoring people it helps you improve your own skills because you you have to explain things clearly you have to demonstrate well you have to kind of support them and it's a sort of win-win isn't it it's lovely yeah and likewise you can do that for them can't you if you you want to if you're mentoring someone and you want them to learn something, you could just get them, you know, do a, do a, a, a project, do a, do a presentation on this, do a blog yep. post on this, whatever, you know, and that, that's going to help them learn really quickly. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, what do you love about what you do? What's your kind of big thing that gets you up in the morning? Um, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah. What do I love? I mean, I'm, I'm really passionate about, kind of um usability obviously inclusive design and right. um yeah it's, it's just really good when you can um help people you know and yeah. i think um i think trying to help um help teams understand you know how people use their systems how they can make their better make them better um but also making things better for the people who are going to be using them you know um some so you know, you know some projects are more um, rewarding than others. You know, if you're doing a public sector project, it's it's obviously going to kind of be um, more wide reaching because it's going to affect a lot of people. Um, we're doing a project at the moment um, with the council where it's um, it's like an online kind of behavioural change system, right? Uh, you know that kind of thing, and, and it the, the kind of feedback so far so far has been really good. So those kind of projects, um, you know, when you think about who the end user is and just making that a bit more making them more likely to succeed in their goal um, by making this system more usable, accessible, et cetera. That's the stuff that keeps me going, I think. Yeah, that's lovely, isn't it? And it's almost like if we're doing our jobs, we're invisible because people are using these things and then they're not, they're not, getting, they're not getting frustrated or sort of tearing their hair out at the, the processes online that don't make any sense. Or And yeah, uh, we've, we've yeah. done our job. You know, it's exactly. kind of like, yeah, interesting. Um, okay. Last couple of things. I thought I'd mix things up a little bit. So are you ready for a three-card challenge? So I've I've done this with with, uh, previous guests. So I'm going to ask you, this is about three top tips. So there's uh, tools, techniques, and trends. Okay, so so your top tip for a tool is a tool that you use all the time in the work you do. And you've mentioned a bunch of them already. But if there's one particular one that you kind of like or find useful and kind of why you do... Uh, techniques is a, a particular UX technique uh, that you use regularly and you find useful kind of either yourself or, or with your uh, team members and finally a trend that you kind of see growing or developing in, in user experience user research over the over the coming years um, how does that sound yeah let's so, I, that. so I've got I've got three cards here 
and I've got, I've got a diamond heart and a club and I'm going to hold them up because uh, we're looking at each other over video and on the back of each I've written trend tool or technique so choose a card uh, let's go for the middle one the, the blue heart yeah. the blue the is tool tool <laughs> so if you'd asked me this a few years back I would have said uh, OBS because um, that was just kind of revolutionary for, for setting the lab up you know I had this amazing bit of kit um, it's, it's basically a, if anyone's not familiar with it it's a it's a streaming tool that uh, was made by um, gamers. So when you see these gamers on YouTube, right. and they record themselves playing playing games, basically, it's um, it's designed for that. But um, we kind of repurposed it and started using it for our research sessions. So we would do recording. You can do picture in picture. Right. Um, you can hook up, you know, different um, devices and stuff like that if you're doing testing on a phone, for example. Um, so yeah, it does the recording side, but it also does the streaming side. So you not only mm. kind of record the session on your laptop, you can also stream it to on a private server or um, whatever YouTube, whatever you want to use. Right. Um, so I would have said that a few years ago, but um, with us shifting to remote stuff, we're not doing as much with OBS. We're doing everything kind of you know in Zoom, etc. Um, yeah. A tool that we use every day for pretty much everything that's really handy and intuitive is gotta be Mule, I would say. Right. Um it's just it's just great for, you know, not only doing do analysis, um, you can do kickoff workshops, you can do yeah, discovery workshops, you can do um blueprints, all that kind of stuff. Right. It's just really good because you can yeah, you can just kind of map things easily, move things around, you can comment on things. Yeah. Um and it's just yeah, it's just great for for collaboration really. And, and for time. those that aren't familiar, Miro is a is a large kind of in, online interactive infinite whiteboard essentially. Yeah, exactly. So it's a whiteboard. So we tried a few of the different whiteboards when um, we were first kind of experimenting, and Miro uh, was and still is for us anyway. It's the most intuitive. Right. Um, it's just yeah, it's kind of um, simple, um, but not too simple. It's got right. yeah, it's got the kind of just exactly the functionality you need, and it's really easy to kind of move around and comment on things and stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, interesting. I use it all the time myself, and I totally agree. I think it's been a it's been a game changer, and in kind of even writing on post it notes and sticking them up on board seems incredibly pre COVID now. <laughs> you know, you just get so used to doing it all virtually. Um, it's great. Okay, so we've got two more cards. Pick another. Uh, let's two. go for the pink triangle one. Yeah. Uh, right. So that is trend. <clears throat> okay. Tell, tell me about a trend. So what what do I think is is going to happen in the next few years? Or yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, there's endless articles online about trends, but I'm just interested. Is there yeah. anything that kind of either interests you or you'd like to do more of, or you see kind of growing and clients demanding more of potentially? Yeah, I think there's going to be there's, there's there's definitely more going on in the AI space and like everywhere basically. And I think AI is getting better every right. you know every day. And I think um, some of the the kind of um, the um, yeah, the voice assistant stuff is, is getting really good. Um, I think there's going to be yeah, it's going to come where there's going to be um, that kind of unmoderated research, maybe with a um, an AI uh, researcher. I, I don't know how effective that's going to be because you know you're going to have to um, there's going to be certain kind of nuances and mannerisms that you're going to have to be aware of. Um, it can maybe only go so far, um, especially for remote stuff, right. which is probably where it's going to go first. But yeah, that. The AI thing is probably definitely going to happen. Uh, probably, definitely. Yeah, probably. So um, do, do you think, interestingly, do you think that like lorry drivers are at risk in the future with kind of autonomous <laughs> trucks? Does that put people like you and me kind of at risk? No, I think it'll just be another tool in our arsenal that we may want to use. So I think right. um, instead of, I think it's just going to, I think, you know, unmoderated testing tools, 
Mm. Um, I'm not so much a fan of them anyway. They, they do have their uses. I think um, one of the problems that um, we've had with them is that you've got a whole kind of uh, user base out there who see this as, that, as their job. You know, they're, um, mm. they're very savvy. A lot of them are kind of web yeah, design professionals. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they basically sign up for all the sites and then, um, yeah, give feedback. I think if you do your own recruitment as part of that tool, it works all right. Um, but yeah, we're kind of sidetracked a bit here. So I, I guess in terms of AI replacement researchers, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's just going to be a tool that we might want to utilize that might, um, you know, we would still design the thing uh, right. and hopefully use it not just on its own, but as part of, um, you know, a, a, alongside another study to try and relate that, that data. Right. It's interesting you say about professional participants, because that's something in terms of, um, you know, going back to sort of lab tests and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, you have people who you can tell early on have done this a lot and kind of know what they're supposed to say and know where they're supposed to go and know yeah. how they're supposed to react. And it's it's kind of it's very frustrating as a researcher. It's, yeah, it's, it's rife. Honestly, yeah. I had I had a, um, kind of bite my tongue a few times because we had confidentiality, confidentiality agreements with um, obviously different clients and um, right. Well, I know myself as a researcher, when, when we did some sessions, um, I seen the same guy who I thought I'd seen like last year and, I, and I, I brought this up and I said, you know, were you involved in this last year? He said, no, no. And uh, yeah, it was the recruiter in question had basically, I've learned that some recruiters do things very old fashioned and in a very old fashioned way. They have like kind of, you know, contacts on their phones who they just email out right. um, to the old school ones. And um, yeah, obviously that list is quite kind of small uh, and eventually you see the same participants appear. Um, but yes, yeah, it happens more than you would would think, really. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially with some of the kind of the the old school recruiters. I don't know how much it happens with like panels and stuff like that. You would hope it's it's not as much mm. um, because Good. yeah, there's less kind of human input there. But yeah, useful caveat. Brilliant. Okay, and then the last one we have the club, which is technique. So, what was the question? What what's kind of a go to technique? Well, yeah, just a, a technique that you use or your your kind of colleagues yeah. use kind of regularly that you like that works. That it, yeah, is a go to technique. Let's say. I, I guess in terms of a method, so you you kind of you, you can't beat um, you know field testing. I think, like I mentioned before, I, when I first set things up, I was thinking, right, you need to do it in the lab. But you know that's not real world at all. People don't use things in labs, and you know it's good for benchmarking. But if you want to um, get a feel for how people actually use your thing, then um, do it in the field, do it in, in person in the house. But um, the great thing about doing stuff remotely is you can do that um, quite easily these days. You can get a feel for different people's diff people's different systems, right. their environment, how they use it in their home, etc. Um, so yeah, I guess. Um, that's something that we do that, that that we do a lot of kind of that contextual stuff, but remote remote contextual stuff, remote ethnography, you might want to call it. Right. Um, what's what's a good technique apart from that? Uh, I don't know. What, what would you say? What was your answer? Be? Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there, I mean, a good UXer has got a whole sort of grab bag of different tools yeah. and techniques that we can draw on, and yeah, it very much depends on the project in question. I mean, one thing that I've done. Uh, couple of times recently is diary studies which i, I really yeah. like and it, it, it takes a lot more work to set them up but it's kind of if you want to do analysis research over a period of time kind of looking at behavior rather than sort of a one-hour snapshot in a lab here's a prototype look at this you kind of say how do you live your life doing particular you know service or you know trying to carry out task x um, yeah. and rather than being there in person people can just sort of self-record what they're doing and how, what they're thinking and it, yeah, it's yeah. I find it quite powerful. It takes a lot more work and a lot more analysis, but potentially it's a lot. You get some really good insights. 
Yeah, we chatted about this a few months back when you were telling me about how you how you did yours, and we we did something similar. Yeah, I think it's um, it's it's interesting. I think it's 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 really good in terms of um, I think we should be doing more research like that, like asynchronously, because I think yeah. a lot of the time as researchers we put our kind of um, fixed deadlines, our nine to five uh, times on the on the participants. You know, often they kind of make it. They've got other stuff going on, but you know, yeah. people are more flexible these days, and I think diary studies, yeah, perfect. It's a good way of um, collecting that data in people's own time, um, you know, more naturally. Um, I think the only thing that worries me about diary studies, and you've obviously done this a, a, a lot more, I think it's about kind of keeping people engaged. Like at what point is, is it, is that to do with recruitment? Is like recruiting the right people who are really interested or, um, you know, does there come a point where people naturally kind of fall off yeah. uh, or less yeah. engaged and, but you've got to just kind of keep that engagement up, you know, and do kind of check-ins and stuff like that, I guess. But, um, but yeah, it, it's it's a really good point and there's a sort of fine line between having a study a typical study long enough to kind of derive good insights but without being too long i find that a week or two kind of obviously yeah. depends what it is but the kinds of things i've done beyond a couple of weeks you're well even beyond a week really if you're asking people to record something every day unless you're waving a lot of money at them which is arguably not the right motivation to do it either uh, yeah, it becomes yeah. quite challenging <laughs> and like set, making those incentives like spreading them out so you know yes. you say, right after a week you get one and then you know after the following week you get that how did you um how did you record your your data i think we used a spreadsheet um and we did a, a telephone call check-in as well so we um, did a sort of mix yeah, interesting so we did a mixed methods one so we had uh checking calls at the beginning to get them set up at the end to kind of just run through their experiences in a sort of more qualitative way but then mm-hmm. i sent out a google form so I sent them, we used um, GovNotify, so the SMS system. So it, the, they received a text message every day. So it didn't come from iPhone, it came from Gov, the UK government. Uh, and there was just a, a short SMS and a link to a Google form. And then oh, they okay. just clicked on that and then just filled in a, a very, very simple Google form. Um, so there was a bit of, and we get, we had sort of slightly longer form, uh, you know, text answers, but also Likert scales. So there was yeah. a better mix of quant and qual, and, and that was then populated in a spreadsheet. So it come almost in real time, we could see the results coming in. Um, yeah. and, but obviously, exactly as you said, not everyone was engaged all the time. Some of them just disappeared, and we never heard from them again. Some people were religious in every day, submitting <laughs> responses. Some people were very flaky. <laughs> but uh, you know, you just have to roll with that. And yeah, there's just so many tools out there, isn't it? You could exactly. use, you know, you use WhatsApp. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't always get to sign up for that because of the the, the date, I think. But um, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Brilliant. Okay. Well, that's pretty much the end. So thank you so much, Tom. That's been really, really interesting. I really enjoyed our chat and uh, good to catch up again. It's been a while. Um, any other final comments or thoughts before I before I let you go and anything we've we've touched on? Um, no, no. Just, yeah. Thanks for having me again. And uh, yeah, best of luck with the podcast and always a pleasure to catch up. Cheers, Mike. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you. Take care. Thanks very much for listening to the second episode of the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment on this episode on either Apple Podcasts or Podbean. And feel free to share it more widely so others have a chance to listen as well. Next time I'll be talking to Dr. John Sykes, an award-winning freelance design consultant who's worked on major service design and transformation projects across the public and private sectors for many years. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centred.